please make your way to Mark chapter number one. You know, we've paid a lot of money to have groups come in that didn't sound half that good. And the truth of the matter is, those groups, they travel around America in a nice cozy bus. Well, those two people right there have given their life to serving on a foreign mission field. I respect that a little bit more. I'm not saying driving around in a big $70,000 travel bus isn't respectable. But I think giving your life to go serve on a foreign field is uh, something that takes an immense amount of faith and uh, really just an amount of trust in the Lord that uh, probably is foreign to a lot of us. And so uh, I, I appreciate that special because they've given their life to tell others about that way. And so they don't just sing about it vainly or emptily. They mean what they say. There is truly a way. It's unique that they would sing that song, though. It's very fitting for the evening because the first verse of that song says, For the people that have been abused or neglected or hurt along the way, there's a way in life. There's an answer. And really the song the entire time alludes to the healer. And so tonight and several weeks now uh, coming up, we'll be, uh, this is a series that we'll, begin, we'll be beginning. Um, and I'll be teaching a little bit about the miracles, the healing miracles of our Savior. And so you see the title on the screens. It is The Healer of the Broken. And I just can't help but think in our country, uh, in our state, locally, if you view very long, you'll find somebody that needs help. You'll find someone who is hurting. Just this week, just in the recent weeks of our church, people have uh, faced tragedies. They've faced difficulties that some of us have never had to face, uh, mountains that great. And yet, even though I may not have crossed those valleys, I may not have faced opposition like that, I do know where to point them. And that's the healer. The one with the answer. And so Mark chapter 1 is where we find ourselves tonight. Um, We'll be beginning here. uh, And like I said, we will continue this series several weeks until it gets older, y'all. Fire me. So uh, (laughs) if one of those things happen, we'll we'll change the series. But I believe uh, teaching over the power of our Savior to help is a tremendous topic. And and, uh, I'm excited about teaching about it now. I'm excited about teaching about it in Missions Month. Because is that not what Missions Month is all about? And so I really think it's fitting uh, in our uh, theme this year being, you know, great marvelous things. I want to see some people healed. And I'm not talking about, you know, walking through the hospital and miraculously doing something. Because at the end of the day, that only lasts about 70 years. I'm talking about the healing of their eternal spirit of their soul that they might forever spend eternity with Christ. And so Mark chapter 1 tonight will begin in verse 19. I just want to quickly stop and say I'm thankful for the message this morning. Uh, as, a, as a preacher, you may not know this, but I've faced this before. It's very intimidating to preach on the gospel. And you say, well, that's silly, that's silly. Well, we were on our way to lunch this afternoon. I told my wife, you know, uh, you got to give my dad some credit. He can preach the gospel about as good as I've ever heard it preached. Uh, (laughs) Humility, not so much, but the gospel, absolutely. I I looked at her and said, you know, that's that's an amazing thing. Every time he preaches the gospel, it moves me. And uh, really, I kind of boiled it down and said, well, it's kind of a good thing because a preacher's not worth much if he can't preach the gospel. If he can preach stewardship but can't preach the gospel, who's he helping? 
And so uh, I, I appreciated that sermon this morning. I quickly want to share a testimony with you. I was sitting right over there, and, and Sunday mornings I'm in a very listening type mode. I try taking notes. I try being moved by the sermon. And, you know, I've heard a lot of preaching over my life, but I don't know why this verse caught me so much this morning. But as he was speaking, uh, he said this, and you'll probably recall it in your mind. He said, he quoted a verse, and he said, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And I just, I just felt this morning, I, I don't know why, I don't know. You know, I've heard that verse several times uh, over my life, but man, this morning it just moved me. And that's an amazing thing about our, our Bible is that it never gets old. It's constantly stirring me, constantly refreshing me, constantly motivating me. And this morning I needed that. And I, I just want to, I'm not trying to thank him, but man, if, if you ever find yourself wondering in the services when my dad speaks, try drawing your attention to what he's saying because it's good. There's a lot of truth in it and a lot of wisdom that, you know, I look forward to having one day, hopefully, but I don't have it right now. So sorry, you'll have to deal with me tonight. Okay, so Mark chapter 1. Verse 19, the reason I'm talking so much and bragging on him is I really don't know that much about the Bible and I didn't study very much. So uh, we'll start in verse uh, 19 of chapter 1. The Bible says, And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath they entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Are thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. If you've ever looked for a, a verse that would prove the deity of Christ, even the demons knew who Jesus was while he was on this earth. Because nobody in this room shares the trait of holiness like Jesus shared it with God. And that devil that day looked at him and says, Oh, I know who you are. You're the Holy One sent from God. And that's a, a verse that proves the deity of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 25, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, he, and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I come to you tonight just so humbly asking for your help. Lord, it's times like this when I stand in front of a group of people that are needing a spiritual boost, needing some type of encouragement or uplifting. And, and Lord, it's at this time I feel very inadequate. I don't know anything that they need. I, I, I've not spoken to them personally, but I just have faith that your spirit and your word working together can be so powerful in each and every person's life and heart tonight. 
So, Father, that's what I pray would be accomplished, that people would listen to your word as it's taught and as it's preached. And, Lord, I pray that you would do something marvelous. And it's in your son's precious name I do pray. Amen. Now, over my life, I've done several idiotic things. I take after my father in that respect, I guess. But I remember one day I was sitting in the living room and uh, I uh, was watching some TV. I guess I was watching baseball. I don't know what what I was watching, but I decided to take a golf ball. And I wanted to learn how to throw a curveball without anybody ever instructing me on how to do it. And if you don't know anything about baseball, essentially how you throw a curveball or a slider or any type of breaking ball... You put your hand just on the back of the ball like you would a fastball, and you throw it with the mental image and the thought process of fastball, 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 and then you torque your fingers or turn your wrist over to get the ball to break in a certain direction. And so this day, I may have been watching some type of sidearm pitcher, I don't know, but I I decided to take this golf ball inside of the house and learn how to throw me a curveball. So I took that ball, and I, you know, I've always had a good wind-up. Now, what happens after the wind-up is really not that important. But as long as the wind-up looks good, that's what's on baseball cards, is it not? <laughs> and so I, I had my wind-up down. You know, I did my little step. I, no slide step. There was nobody on first. It just Obviously, I didn't let people on first. Uh, no hitters all the way. And so I was winding up, and I threw my knee up, and I put myself towards home plate. Fastball, fastball, fastball. But a golf ball is much smaller than a baseball, if you did not know. And when I torqued my hand, what was supposed to go straight went straight that way. Now, I would not have been so ignorant as to throw the ball in a place that could break something. But I was not really expecting the ball to go that way. As soon as I let go of the ball, it heads straight for one of the lamps that is on the wall and busts the glass that is surrounding the lamp. And so that was one of the idiotic things that I've done in my life. I remember when I was actually much older, probably 17, 18 years old, I was out back and I was shooting my dad's bow and arrow. Now, I know quite a bit about archery. Uh, I've done it now. I think I tallied it up the other day now. Ten years I've been bow hunting, something like that. Just uh, for a long time I've been bow hunting, and now I'm actually starting to shoot pretty accurate, and I actually uh, have started to kill some animals with my archery equipment. But uh, I was trying to help Dad. And if you don't know this, bows are not like rifles. Rifles pretty much be a sight and a scope. One person can look down the scope and shoot fairly accurately if another person aims the, the weapon in. Well, a bow is not like that at all. So with my bow, I'm pretty dead on all day long. But I was trying to help Dad, and I was trying to help sight his equipment in because hunting season was coming around the corner. And so I was out back, and I uh, drew his bow back. It's much lighter poundage than mine, no problem. I drew his bow back and anchored in, got my my, uh, rest, everything good. And I let that arrow go, and what I did not realize is his sights coming from my eyeball, and his draw length is not my draw length, shot that arrow approximately eight foot higher than it was supposed to leave that bow. 
Now, these bows these days shoot arrows about 300 feet per second. And so that is moving. And now you calculate eight feet higher than the target at 300 feet per second. I hear a crash like, gra like glass uh, breaking. Well, I decided to go inspect and see the damage, and I went to the office. Now, if you've ever been to our house, you know what the office is. It's a white building there towards the house. And, and I went and I found the arrow on the, inside of the, on the inside of the office building, but I looked at the window and it was actually still there. I said, now how did that get through there? Now, I began to inspect the window, and if you can imagine a square glass window, in the very bottom corner is where that arrow passed through. Now, it did break some glass, but just barely. Now, the story I told you about the curveball, Mom was home on that one, and she heard it break. But nobody heard this one break. And the damage was really not all that bad. So I decided to keep this little secret to myself. Obviously, I confessed the sin that I had done, and it was under the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. But I did not find it necessary that I tell that to my parents. And it was sometime much later, probably about two years later, my, we were sitting at the dinner table. My dad said, you know, I went in the office today, and the window was broken. Huh. <laughs> you know, I've seen Windex commercials where birds fly into the window. Do you think that happened? No, that didn't happen, Andrew. <laughs> dad, I have something to tell you. I saw Mandy shooting a bow. <laughs> I confessed that day that I maybe had withheld some information, and luckily my father was a seasoned man of God at this point in his life. Now, if it had happened much earlier, I would have probably gotten a beaten. But uh, he was nice to me. He didn't do anything to me that day. But you know what I tried doing was I tried concealing a broken window. The fact of the matter is the window was broken. And I knew it was broken, but I tried hiding it. You know what the saddest thing to me is, is I think there's a lot of Christians' lives that are in shambles. And they even know it. But whether it's pride or just uh, trying to put on a facade... They don't want others to know it. They don't want others to know about the hurt that they feel, the damage that has been done to them. And, and I'm here today just to simply point out the fact that Jesus offers healing. And that's what he does to this man and for this man today. So briefly tonight, I just quickly want to look at three truths found in this passage. And the first truth is found uh, really in verse 23 and 24, but... I want to point out to your attention the unclean presence at the synagogue. The unclean presence at the synagogue. Now, verse 23, the Bible says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a rather odd place to find a man with an unclean spirit, is it not? I mean, I could probably find a lot more uh, uh, easily accessible places, probably places that have far more unclean spirits than them than, than the synagogue, right? I mean, that's where religion's taking place. Uh, you know, we could probably start at a bar somewhere tonight where people have uh, made a decision to not come to church and not worship God and not uh, further their relationship with Christ, but instead they're selfishly wasting their money on, on, on liquid that changes their attitudes and their philosophies, and they become people they don't even know who they are when they get that drink in them. And I could probably take you to a bar tonight and find that. I could probably take you to some dirty place somewhere to this evening where things that we don't even want to speak of tonight are taking place. And, and we could probably walk in there and I could probably say, now that, that right there is an unclean spirit. Absolutely. If I've ever seen one, that's what that is. And we could probably do that. You know, I could probably take you tonight to uh, a place where uh, people have decided not only to not worship God, but to even worship spirits and satanic demons. And I could probably walk into that building where they're doing that this evening, and I could probably point out to you and say, you know what, if I've ever seen it, that is an unclean spirit. But the synagogue? The church? Why, why would a man with, a, with a, an unclean spirit, why would a man with some type of possession, why would he find himself in, in this type of location where worship and religion and truth is found? I want to point out to you two things. First of all, we need to realize the reality of our opposition. The fact of the matter is, just because this is a church does not mean that some type of opposition to God's goal is not in this building this evening. You know, I don't remember scanning my membership card. Y'all ever go to Sam's Club? Is that not the most elitist company you've ever walked into? You walk in and say, where's your card? I forgot it. Well, goodbye. You walk in and you show them your membership card. Now, maybe we've printed them up. I, I don't know, but did you flash your membership card tonight? Did you flash your card that says, oh, absolutely, I'm a born-again believer? Absolutely. Uh, I've got no sin in my life. Absolutely. There's nothing that, that I would hinder the, the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Just scan this card. It, it tells my whole story. You didn't. And you could look to your right and you could look to your left. And I, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm not trying to say anything about your neighbor. I'm just saying just because there's people here tonight does not mean they want to see anyone saved. There's people that are absolutely opposed to any type of good, any type of gain for the cause of Christ. Often I'll have teenagers come up to me and they'll ask me a little bit about Bible college or they'll ask me a little bit about Joshua Christian Academy. And, you know, they'll ask me, they'll say, Brother Andrew, what do you think about going to JCA? And I, I, I'm very honest in all my answers, whether I'm talking about West Coast Baptist College or, or anything, I always tell them, you know, it's a really good thing. But just like everywhere, 
there's bad people there too. You know, I, I went to Bible college and Bible college is a place where people have given their life over to serving God. And you can find alcohol. Pornography is accessible. Oh, there's easy girls there just like there is at TCU this evening. You see, there's bad influences everywhere. And we have to deal with this opposition, people that do not want the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I'm reminded about the warning that Jesus Christ gave Simon Peter. He looks at uh, Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Simon, Satan wants to shake you down. Satan wants to see if you're real or not. He wants to see just how true everything that comes out of your mouth is. Simon, if you say you'll go with me to death, he wants to put you to the test. And now by no means am I saying tonight that there is someone possessed of a demon. I don't believe a Christian can be possessed of a demon. For where the Holy Spirit of God is, there is no room for the devil or Belial. So a born-again believer of God cannot be demon-possessed. But I do know that there are people that do not want to see growth, do not want to see uh, a gain. And, you know, I look at Peter's life, and you look at Peter's life, and obviously he's riddled with mistakes, but he's also riddled with great successes. But I wonder if all of this shaking down at the end of Peter's life when he writes this verse in 1 Peter 1.8, I wonder if maybe he understood the oppression of Satan a little bit better as an, as an elderly man of God when he says, Be sober. Be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, roameth about seeking whom he may devour. It was just a few years before when Jesus had warned him about this. He said, Peter... Satan wants to sift you as wheat, bud. And so as Peter grows and he begins to see victories won in his Christian life, he looks back to all those that would read the book of 1 Peter. He looks back to you and he looks back to me and he says, If anybody understands the oppression of Satan, I do. Because I remember when the Messiah said, Peter, watch out. And I fell. You say, Brother Andrew, what's an example of oppression in the church. I'll tell you one, when people talk about things that ought not be talked about. It was not long ago we had someone bragging about bar fights in the church. What are we doing bragging about being brawlers is that sharing the love of Christ? That is oppression. That is opposition. That is someone saying, I've chosen my own path. But the furtherance of the kingdom of God is the farthest thing from their mind. Uh, I believe we need to be so strong. We need to be vigilant. We need to wake up like Peter says. And he says, you need to realize the reality of opposition. Secondly, I want you to notice that in this passage there is a realization of opposition as well. Look in verse 24. 
Now, I believe it would be a wise thing for us to realize there's a fight because they do. Verse 24. This is the unclean man. He cries out saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. The fact of the matter is tonight, Satan knows there's a battle. He knows that Jesus' goals and Jesus' priorities are not his. I believe that's why when James warns us, he says, Thou believest that there's one God, thou doest well. The devils believe also and tremble. A.W. Tozer said this, The devil is a better theologian than us all and is still a devil. When Jesus was doing great miracles and he was going throughout the regions of the land, healing people and, and casting out demons, y'all remember the story when the Pharisees and the Sadducees says, You do it in the name of Bilal. You do it in the name of Satan himself. You're casting out demons in the name of the devil. And Jesus stops them in their tracks and he says, No. If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Jesus says, My goals, my desires, my priorities are not the same as the devil's. I want truth. I want light. I want salt. He wants darkness and wickedness and filthiness. They're not the same. And I don't think that it belongs in the church house. I don't think we ought to be talking about wicked and vile things. I believe when you come here, your conversation ought to be just. I believe it ought to be righteous. I believe it ought to be pleasing to God. There ought not be wickedness take place here. We ought to be serving. We ought to be growing. We ought to realize and wake up that there is a battle at hand. And Satan does not want what we want. He's not trying to gain what we gain. I just want you to notice the unclean presence at the synagogue. Secondly, I want you to see this. The unbelievable power at the synagogue. The unbelievable power. Now, there's an unclean man at the synagogue and... Throughout this series, you'll see several times when someone under demonic influence or oppression, whatever you want to refer to it as, has supernatural strength. The very first sermon I ever preached was out of Luke chapter 8 about the uh, maniac of Gadara, the demon-possessed man. And Dad always wanted me to call it uh, a, a rude dude with a, a, a new dude with, in a rude mood. That's what he wanted me to call it, a root, a, a root, a, I, get, I wasn't intelligent enough to get it out. That's why I didn't do it. I say, take your Bibles to Luke 8. We're going to talk about a, 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 a new dude in a rude mood. That's what it was. And I remember in that story how he was bound in chains and fetters. He found himself, and I preached to the teenagers on it not long ago, how he, he found himself, it caught up with him, and his devil would catch up with him, and people would catch him, and, and they would tie him with chains and with fetters, and, and he would break them. He was extra strong. 
And today we find ourselves with an unclean man, a demon-possessed man, in the synagogue. And, and probably people could have looked at him and said, man, look at the strength. This guy is off his rocker. That's what people say about me all the time. Look how strong he is. He's crazy. And this guy comes to church, and I'm, I'm sure people go, man, this guy can do things. But I want you to notice, that was not the power at the synagogue that day. That was not what caught everyone's attention. The unbelievable power at the synagogue that day was Jesus Christ. And I want you to look in verse 22. What was so powerful about Jesus that day? You know, he doesn't lift any gates. He doesn't do anything that would show his great uh, power. But verse 22, And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. First of all, they were impressed by the power of his doctrine. So far in my search, I found three different places where Jesus... Uh, uh, casts out a demon and people are dumbfounded and they say, who is this man that he even has power over the demons? Um, Luke chapter 4 verse 32, Mark chapter 1 verse 22, Matthew chapter 7, all places where they say, who is this man that he even has power to cast out the demons? John chapter 7 verse 46, the Bible says the officers answered, never a man spake like this. You know, as a preacher, I find that so interesting. You know why I preached on the sermons of Jesus Christ? It wasn't for you. It was so that I could study them. You know, if I want to be a good preacher, if I try uh, uh, gaining experience, if I try collectively uh, gleaning from men of God that preach the Word of God that moves me, the most powerful preacher to ever walk this earth was no doubt Jesus Christ. And that's why people would hear him speak and they say, Man, the authority that he has. When I stand up and preach, I have to reference other preachers. I have to get illustrations. I have to listen to other preachers speak. I have to read commentaries. I have to study. You know what? Jesus didn't have to. Because in John chapter 1, the Bible tells us, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I remember when uh, my wife and I had just gotten married. We were sitting in the vehicle one day, and, and her and her brother were in the car, and we began to argue about the Bible. It's okay if you argue about the Bible. It's not so much of a bad argument in that case, even though you're saying bad names. It's okay. It's about the Bible. And her brother and, uh, and uh, her were arguing the point that John chapter 1 was talking about the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures. And that really they weren't even arguing that so much. They were arguing if you could refer to the Scriptures as living, the living Word of God. Now my argument was the living Word of God is Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us, his dad referenced this morning, that Jesus uh, came in the flesh and 
dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and so we began to argue, I think we're going into Target or something like that. And they said, no, the living word of God can be scripture. And I said, no, the living word of God is Jesus. Now the word of God is the scripture, but it's just a book, the living word of God. But you know what I've come to realize? It's just semantics. Because when I open this book, I'm meeting with the living Word of God anyway. When I open this book, He's the one that authored it all. Sure, this may not be a a heart-beating book. Sure, this book may never draw any type of breath. But at the end of the day, Jesus is all throughout this thing. And you want to know why he didn't need to draw from other preachers? You want to know why he didn't need commentaries and references? Because he was there when it started. Colossians 1 tells us that it was him that spoke everything into existence. John 1 says he's been there from the beginning. The Bible tells us that in Psalms that forever thy word is established in heaven... Oh, this was there long before we ever got here. These principles, the truth found in this book, God's character, God's moral uprightness, yeah, it's always been the same. You know why Jesus was such a powerful preacher? Because we have a message unlike any other. Men can try working their way to heaven, but the reason that these people that day said, who is this man that teaches with such authority? Can I, can I offer you my opinion? Because this day he was saying words like grace. This day he was saying stuff like mercy, compassion. Now their religion was due, keep these rules uh, earn your way, merit, 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 be as good as you can. And this man one day stood up and says, not of works of righteousness, but it's what I'm going to do for you. Mercy and love and compassion and grace and concern. You know why he was authoritative on that subject? Because he understood full well what his mercy was going to cost him. He understood full well that his compassion would drive him to Calvary. So if there's anybody that was able to speak on the topic of love, that was able to speak on the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was him. And these men were so enamored that he spoke with authority on love, mercy, and compassion. You know, we have that same message. And while I may not be compassionate to everyone all the time, while sometimes I'm probably not as merciful as I ought to be, I can be authoritative in this one thing. Jesus came to die for sinners, of whom I am chief. Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. You know what? I just believe full well that people will hear that message and they'll not say, man, you speak with authority. They'll say, what a Savior.
And I really don't care if people think I'm an authoritative speaker. I really couldn't care less whether people like to hear me speak. As long as I do not hinder the gospel being preached, as long as I don't mute the message of the gospel, that's all I care about. Authoritative or not, he was authoritative to go to Calvary and die for our sins. He was powerful in his doctrine, but he was also powerful in his demand. In verse 25. We see this. Now this unclean man, he has entered the temple or, or the synagogue and he has uh, spoken up and says, Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are. You, you, have you come to destroy me? Verse 25, and Jesus rebuked him saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. Verse 26, and when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. You know, when Jesus says something, it always comes to pass. When Jesus decides to accomplish something, it always happens. That's why when he said, I will build my church, he was going to do it before he died. Because he finishes what he starts. Matthew 28, verse 18, he says these words. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven. And in earth. He has all authority. Everything is his. It's all under him. And by the word of his mouth, everything is upheld. I believe that. Now you say, I don't fully understand what you're talking about. Can I put it to you like this? Have you ever had your mama say your first name and your middle name? It has a ring to it, doesn't it? Now, my middle name is Nathan. I'm named after the prophet that stood up to David and said, Thou art the man, David. I'm named after Andrew because he first findeth his brother and bring them to Jesus. And apparently dad preached a really good sermon on it that moved my mom. And so I'm Andrew Nathan Wolfenbarger. Now my mom's a sweet lady most of the time. I did a lot of dumb things growing up. I've already confessed that this evening. But, you know, there's something about when your mom says your first name and your middle name and your last name all running together, is there not? Andrew Nathan Wolfenbarger. That's a mouthful. I'm not even talented enough to say it. Andrew Nathan! Oh, yes, Proverbs 31, lady. Have I upset thee? Shouldn't you be off buying a field somewhere? That's power. That's authority. You know what the Bible says about Jesus and the power of his word? In the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, the Bible talks a little bit about the words that would proceed out of the mouth of Jesus. Verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, 
And that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The word that proceedeth out of his mouth, the sword that proceedeth out of his mouth, is none other than the spoken word of God. When he comes back, he won't need a sharp sword. He'll need his word. And it will be so powerful that all the armies of the earth that have gathered will fall down before him. Even Satan himself in this chapter, uh, the beast is bound at the word of Jesus. He has authority. And I'm thankful he's my savior. I'm thankful I don't serve a Savior that's still in the grave. I'm thankful I don't serve a Savior that doesn't have the power to save. I'm thankful that my Savior has power and all authority in this earth. And He's mine. And I am His. Finally, I just want to share with you this. The unique publication after the synagogue. Now, we've seen the demon-oppressed man. We've seen the, uh, 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 the presence of this uh, strange man here. Now we've seen the power of Jesus Christ. But now I want you to see how this event has taken place and it begins to be publicized immediately. Verse 27, I draw your attention to verse 27. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he to the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. I want you to first notice with me here in this verse, a fresh experience. Look here in verse 27. What new doctrine is this? That was their question. What new doctrine is this? Because I want some of that. What new thing has he got that we don't have? What new thing? I would assume these people were churchgoers. I would assume they were there week in and week out. I would assume that they were so accustomed to going to church when Jesus shows up and says something and this man's healed, casts out the demon. I would assume that they are charter members. They're deacons. They're, they're, they're trustees. They're people who are faithful. And Jesus steps in and they say, what new thing does he have? Can I ask you a question? How much different would our services look if Jesus was here? Would they be different at all? Would we be more willing to fall on our face at the altar if Jesus were here? Would we be more willing to approach a visitor and say, Hey, have you met my friend Jesus? Would we be more willing to see someone down here at the altar crying their eyes out and hurting desperately in pain and agony? Would we be more willing to walk up and just put our hand on them and say, is there anything I can pray with you about? Would we be more willing to be better servants if Jesus were here? Would we be more willing if he were sitting on the front row to be a better Christian, 
to pay attention a little bit more, to check the scores a little bit less, to read our Bible a little more intently, to listen to the preacher just a little bit more closely. Would we be better if Jesus were here? Because these people notice the difference in church. When Jesus arrives, church was fresh. It was new. It was powerful. And I just believe it would be for us as well. What does a church service where Jesus shows up look like? Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit of God moves in a service probably like it's never moved since then. Verses 41 and 43. Now, what would a church that has Jesus in it look like? What, what would it be? Would it be a preaching church? Would it be a singing church? Would it be a, a church that worships? What, what would that church look like? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and, and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Our church is the only thing limiting God. For there is no limitations with him. I'm reminded of Jonathan as he steps up and looks over the crest of the hill and he says, Little armor bearer, how are we going to do this? Are we going to go take this troop? Are we going to go take these people? And Jonathan says something. He says, It is no thing for the Lord to save by many or by few. You see, we are the only ones that limit God. Our willingness, our desire to see growth, our desire to see change, our desire to see worship more real than we've ever seen it before. That's the only thing that limits him because God says, where two or three are gathered, there I will be in the midst of them. He says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together because he promises to meet with us. Would our services look any different if he were here? Would they be different? Would you be different as a result of his presence? I just believe church would become a fresh experience. I don't think we would dread going to Wednesday night services so much if we got to shake Jesus' hand. If Jesus were the one to come up and conduct the invitation or the announcements, I don't think we would dread it so much. Then why do we dread it now? Why is it so difficult for us to talk ourselves into getting off of work and coming to a Sunday evening or a Wednesday night service? Well, you know, Brother Andrew, it's just been a long day. I wonder if you would change your mind if Jesus were here. Friend, I want God to do some great things with our congregation. I want us to see so many souls saved. Oh, I think the report was 400 this past year of people that made a a, a statement of faith, a a trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's awesome, but you know what I want 2014 to be? 800. 1,000. Because the gospel is powerful enough. Acts chapter 2, 3,000. If Jesus gets involved, miracles will happen. And I believe that church will get a little less stale. I believe it would be a very unique experience every time we came. I, I, you'd probably not go home saying, well, 
Darlene, preacher, told the same story he told last week. You know how many times I've heard that snuffy, dusty comment? That better than snuff ain't near as dusty. I can't believe I laughed the first time I heard that, Darlene. I wonder if we'd go home saying, you know what? He preached the gospel. And it infected me. It didn't even just affect me. It infected me. It got in me. It got in my crawl. It got under my saddle, and I can't shake it. I just believe church would become fresh. I believe it would be vibrant. I believe it would be exciting. You say, Brother Andrew, I just don't feel church is exciting. Maybe you ought to invite Jesus into it. Maybe in the cares of life and the struggles and the difficulties that we face, man, y'all have got a lot on your plate. Y'all go to work every day. Y'all have got business meetings and, and quotes and, and all these other things. And maybe in the course of that, it's hard to compartmentalize it when you get here. But I believe if you stepped out of your truck and you said, Jesus, please meet with me tonight, he would do it. And that is what I ask each and every one of you to do. Ask Jesus to make an impact in your life next time we meet. And I believe our church will see great things. Uh, A fresh experience. And then finally, I want you to notice a fame explosion. Verse 28. Now, this is a pretty unique story. It's very interesting. One of the very early miracles in Christ's ministry could very well be the first Some would debate that there's another one. We'll probably cover that one next week. But very early in Christ's ministry, he's doing great miracles. He's healing folks. Verse 28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout the region round about Galilee. You know, if there's a good enough story, I've never hindered to tell it. You may notice that I enjoy telling some stories more than others, because some are just funnier than others. Some are easier to tell, some are funner to hear. Yeah, I don't like telling the ones where I fail. I like telling the ones where my dad and mom fell. And I tell plenty of those. I just believe if we had a good enough story, we'd be willing to tell a little bit more. Because these people that day at this synagogue, they saw something, they felt something, they uh, had a new experience, and they said, i got to go tell somebody. i got a cousin over here in Galilee. I've got to run and tell him. Cuz, you won't believe what happened today at the synagogue. I told you you should have been there. I told you you should have been watching that NASCAR race. A man named Jesus showed up. And there was this man with a demon, an unclean spirit. And Jesus, not like the the scribes, not like the Pharisees, he cast him out with authority. And they're always coaxing them out. They're always trying to get them out, asking them to come out. No, Jesus just said, be gone. And he was gone. Because it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen at the synagogue. I'm going back next week. You ought to come to. And I believe if we had more and more experiences of Jesus showing up and the Holy Spirit moving in our heart, I just don't believe it would be a big thing to go tell somebody, hey, you ought to come see what my preacher does. He's got this snuff joke that is hilarious. 
I, I really feel as if the story's good enough. We're probably just not telling it enough. Jesus calls his disciples and he says, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. You say, Brother Andrew, I feel a little inadequate sometimes. I don't feel like I know the gospel good enough to tell somebody about it. I wonder if that's why Jesus said, I will make you to become fishers of men. You see, Andrew runs out and he finds his brother Peter. Just come meet this guy. Just come meet this guy. I don't know enough about him, but I know he's unique. I know he's special, but just come meet him. And Jesus says, I will make you to become. And the same Simon Peter that was told and promised that he would become a fisher of men is the same guy that preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls heard the word of God, reacted upon it, and got baptized. A fame explosion. Just a group of people willing to tell the story they had felt. I believe that's what we need to do as a church family. Probably about, I don't know, I was maybe a junior or senior in high school. We would often go out to the ranch. And you all have heard many stories about the ranch. You know a little bit about it. We own some land out towards Abilene. We hunt and we fish on it. and We run some cattle on it. Well, one day my mom was in the house and she was cooking or cleaning or whatever ladies do in the house. I'm not quite sure. Probably watching Rachel Ray. Maybe. I was down at the pond fishing, and my dad was working. That's how it usually happens. He was bush hogging, and there's only one seat on that tractor, so unless he wanted me in his lap, he was all go for it. And so he was bush hogging that day, and, and he was driving straight down the road, and he had not turned the PTO or the power take off. He had not turned the bush hog off. So the the, it's still spinning. It's still trying to cut grass. Now, he's driving down the road. There's not much grass on the road. But he's driving down the road with it spinning. And here in a second, he hears this noise, a loud noise, but it's not unusual. You often hit things with a mower or with a bush hog, and you just hear it, and you keep driving. So he hears the... And he just keeps going. No big deal. If you've ever mowed or you've ever bush hogged, you know that stuff happens. Sometimes it's a rock. Sometimes it's a small child. You just never know. But this day, what it ended up being was a piece of steel. And if you remember, you know, we've been in a pretty long drought now. And when that bush hog hit that steel, it acted like a flint. And it lit our ranch on fire. Now, class, please help me. Where am I right now? Fishing. Now, Mom was the only one that answered. <laughs> I was fishing. Where was Mom right now? In the house. In the kitchen. Mom specified she was not watching television. It was the kitchen. Probably washing dishes with the ugly stepsister. Probably. So I was fishing. Mom was in the kitchen. Dad's working. He hits a flint, hits some steel. Lights the ranch on fire. Now he is battling this fire all by himself. And what were you beating it with? The small child you hit? <laughs> Anything you could find. 
The tractor. Okay, Clark Kent. He's out there. Can you imagine this? 110 degrees, like Texas always is, burning, smoking hot. There's a fire that is about half an acre big, and my 70-year-old dad out there, this flame but he prevailed he comes up to the house and he looked like he'd been in a fight with Satan himself you know he got a heat stroke that day he battled that flame all by himself so long and it was so hot on him that even to this day he says I've never been the same since that day You know what I think? I think we have the rock. What I mean is, I think the gospel is our flint. And I'm tired of Christians viewing it, this world as we're the ones trying to put out the fire. You know what I ought to think put out the fire? I ought to think the devil ought to be the one fighting the fire. I think the gospel ought to be the thing burning. I think there ought to be about 500 people in this church that just decide, I will do all, I will be all, I will sell all, I will give all, and I will burn and be spent for the cause of the gospel. You know what I want to see? I want to see Satan. There's something happening in Johnson County. Send everybody, guys. we got to get this flame out. The gospel's shining too bright. Send everybody, guys. This is crazy. There's just a bunch of people that decided to sell out to Jesus. Send everybody, guys. Put the fire out. Put the fire out. Too many people are being saved. Too many people are hearing the gospel. Put the fire out. Why do we feel like we're the ones battling the flames of this whole wicked world? The gospel will burn. The gospel will move on. The gospel will save. Jesus can heal. All we got to do is introduce folks to him. 